And so let us begin this night with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, we come before you this night in thanksgiving for this mission here. Thanksgiving for everyone you have brought here these nights. And Lord, especially tonight, we thank you for the gift of the Eucharist. And we pray, Lord, this night that your healing presence in the Eucharist would touch us deeply. That through your grace we could grow, that we could change, that we could believe more deeply in your real presence that is here with us this night. And Mary, we ask for your motherly intercession, and your motherly protection upon us now and all the days of our life. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I went to college in Pennsylvania, a state college called Kutztown University. And when I was there in college, my junior year, I somehow got into this elective English class that was called modern poetry. And believe it or not, it was actually a very popular class. And I signed up for it, not thinking I'd ever get, in, get into it, but I did. And in that class, I was sitting next to a young woman who was my age, and her name was Nicole. And Nicole was one of those people who it seems like their life is almost perfect. She was a very intelligent woman. She had a, just a wonderful family. She was a very beautiful young woman. And she was friends with, it seemed, like every different kind of person, every different kind of group. Everyone seemed to love her. And we became friends from being in this class. And as we kind of moved forward and ended up graduating, Nicole got a job teaching English to boys in New Jersey. It's an all-boys school. And I ended up going to New York to join the Friars. And we, we ended up keeping in touch uh, by writing letters and talking on the phone occasionally. And after about six months, of teaching, Nicole developed this pain in her back. And she thought it was just from all the sitting that she was doing, from correcting papers and from teaching. But a few weeks went by, and the pain never went away. And so Nicole ended up going to the doctors and ended up getting um, some x-rays done. And it was determined that Nicole had cancer. And that this cancer that was inside of her was actually pretty advanced and that it was growing rapidly. And so immediately Nicole had to begin chemotherapy. She had to quit her job teaching and she was in therapy and 
She lost her hair. She lost a, t a lot of weight. And all of a sudden, this beautiful young woman, I didn't even recognize her when I would see her. And one Sunday, I went to visit her in the hospital with another priest in my community. And we brought her communion. And as soon as we came into the room, her, her family was there, her mom and dad and the sister. And I greeted Nicole and I told her, and I said, Nicole, we brought Jesus here today for you. And she knew exactly what I meant. She knew that we brought communion, that we brought the Eucharist. And immediately, she broke down in tears. And it wasn't tears of sorrow, but it was tears of joy. And she kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And she said something so beautiful. She said, even here in my pain in the hospital, Jesus comes to visit me. And after we gave her communion, we spent about an hour with her and her family just talking. And we ended up leaving. I said goodbye to her parents. And her parents were so grateful. Not so much that we were there, but because we brought her communion. And a week later, her mother called me and told me that Nicole had passed away in the middle of the night. And so that was the last time that I, would ever, that I ever saw her. And so a few days later, I went to her funeral. And it was in a church that probably held about 600 people. And there was standing room only in the church. It was packed. Because everyone loved this woman. And I remember at the funeral, as I was coming forward to receive communion, her casket was right there in the middle. And when I came up to receive communion, I put my hand on the casket. I received communion. And I came back to my seat. And all of a sudden, I had this strange realization. I realized that even though Nicole died of cancer at such a young age, in such a tragedy. I realized that this young woman, in a sense, died healed. That she actually died healthy and at peace. And I realized this when she received the Eucharist that morning in that hospital room. Because the Eucharist for Nicole was not a nice symbol of God's love. It wasn't even an idea or some sort of theory, but that it was God's love. That the Eucharist for Nicole was this profound encounter with God. She knew that God had come to visit her in that hospital 
under the appearance of bread. In my parish where I grew up, also in Pennsylvania, right outside of the church on the, on the ground, there's a, a painting made on the bricks. And the painting is of a pelican bird. And I remember when I was young, I could never figure out why is there a pelican bird on the sidewalk outside of our church? Until one day, I actually asked our priest, and he told me the story. You know, according to legend, that in a time of suffering, in a time of famine or drought, it's believed that a pelican bird, a pelican mother, will actually pluck her own flesh to feed her children. And in the early church, Christians recognized this and they saw it as almost the perfect symbol or the perfect analogy for what the Eucharist is. God himself giving us his flesh in our time of suffering, in our time a famine. And I realized that that morning at the hospital with Nicole, that that was exactly what God was doing. If we really think about it, if the bread and wine at Mass really becomes Jesus, which is what our faith teaches us from the very beginning, if that bread and wine really becomes Jesus, and if heaven is a person, namely Jesus, as John Paul II reminded us, then every time we come to Mass, we are in a very mysterious way experiencing a foretaste of heaven. Every time we are in adoration, we are experiencing foretaste of heaven. A few months after Nicole died, I was speaking with her mom, and her mom was always a devout woman. Her whole family was a very devout family. And I remember her mom telling me, she said, I've never loved going to daily mass more in my life than after these weeks that Nicole died. And the reason is, the reason was because she said it was at the Mass where she felt closest to Nicole. Just think about it. If the Mass is really a foretaste of heaven, that is where everyone is who have died and who is now with the Lord. That in a very mysterious way, when we come to Mass, we participate in that communion of saints with all of those who have gone before us. That's why John Paul II once said that the Eucharist is the most precious possession with which the Church can have in her journey through history.
What do we really believe about the Eucharist? This night, I would like to just mention two very simple things about the Eucharist. We could spend weeks here talking about the Eucharist and only just begin. But tonight, I'd like to just mention two things. The Catechism says that the Eucharist is the source and the summit of the Christian life. In short, it means that the Eucharist is everything. Every sacrament that we receive, whether it's baptism, whether it's confirmation, whether it's marriage, it is all geared towards receiving Jesus in the Eucharist. It is all geared towards opening our hearts, opening our minds to experience and to receive this great mystery. And the reason is, is because God wishes to come this close to us. If we look at salvation history, and all that means is basically the history of God throughout the Bible, throughout the scriptures, what is the story? It's the story of God calling out to man, man trying to follow him and then messing up, and then God starting over again, calling us, we mess up, God calls us again and draws us closer and closer to him. If you remember in the book of Exodus, when God has really literally led Israel out of slavery in Egypt, there's that beautiful scene when God rains down manna from heaven because they have no food, they have no water, they have just left everything. They are, in a sense, homeless wanderers. And God rains down heaven, God rains down manna from heaven to feed them and to take care of them. That manna was food, just food, given to us by God, given to them by God. And Jesus, in the Gospel of John, commenting on this important event in salvation history, says these beautiful words. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the desert, but they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Is it possible that here Jesus is speaking metaphorically, that he's speaking almost in poetry, that he doesn't actually literally mean what he says? I suppose it's possible, because there are many Christians who would say that. But listen to the next words that Jesus says. He says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood. You do not have life within you. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is not talking about a symbol. He's talking about a profound reality that literally was too much for people. At the end of that discourse, many people turned away from Jesus because, as the scripture says, these sayings were too hard. I'm sure many of you have heard of the writer Flannery O'Connor. She was a writer who lived in, I think, Georgia in the early 1930s. And she was a, a very devout Catholic woman and a very good writer. And she was invited one time to this writer's event in New York, where there was this big dinner happening and all of these writers were, were honored for their work. And one night, Flannery is sitting at the table with this other group of writers. And they were all Protestant, except her. She was Catholic. And Flannery was kind of a very quiet woman. She didn't really say a lot. And this one lady at the table knew that Flannery was Catholic, and she just wanted to try to engage her in conversation. And so this woman said to Flannery, she said, oh, you're Catholic. Flannery said, yes. And this woman said, isn't the Eucharist a great symbol? And Flannery put down her fork, and she looked at this woman, and she said, if the Eucharist is a symbol, then to hell with it. Everyone kind of looked at her, and she just resumed eating. No one said anything else to Flannery that night. <laughs> but she raises a great point. In our world, we are filled with symbols. There are symbols everywhere. There are signs pointing us to a reality. The beauty of creation points us to the reality of God. The beauty of stained glass windows points us to a reality greater than here. But the Eucharist doesn't point to anything because the Eucharist is Jesus. Every time we come into a church, Catholic Church where the Eucharist is present, if we're physically able to, generally we would genuflect. To genuflect is an act of worship. Nobody, or at least they're not supposed to, genuflect to things like trees or cars or buildings or other people. It'd be really strange if you're walking down the street and someone's genuflecting to a tree or to a car. And the reason why we don't genuflect to those things is because those things are not God. We only genuflect to God. And you probably are aware of this, but that during the Mass, there's three times when a priest genuflects. After he consecrates the bread and holds up the host, he genuflects. After he consecrates the wine and holds up the chalice, he genuflects. And then after he breaks the host, and, and the congregation is, is reciting the Lamb of God, 
The priest says these profound and somewhat scary words that you probably have never heard because generally the priest says them to himself. This is what he says. He says, May the receiving of your body and blood, Lord Jesus Christ, not bring me to judgment and condemnation, but through your loving mercy be for me protection in mind and body and a healing remedy. And then the priest genuflects the third time. Quite honestly, those words at times make me shudder, as I'm sure they, they do many priests. Because of the realization that what is happening, at that moment, I and the priest is holding God in his hand. Think about that. He is holding God in his hand. After I was ordained for about a month, I was with a group of my friends and, and they asked me, they said, so what's it like being a priest? What's it like celebrating Mass? And you know what my answer was? I almost surprised myself at this answer, but I said to them, I said, you know, to be quite honestly, to be quite honest, it's embarrassing. And the reason why it's embarrassing is because of this tremendous intimacy that is involved with the Eucharist. In my fourth year in the seminary, we had a class, we had many classes, this one class specifically was on the Eucharist. And the priest who was teaching us, a wonderful, uh, saintly man, he began that whole class on the Eucharist by telling us the story. He said that a few years ago, he was the spiritual director for a group, a community of sisters. And that one of these sisters became a Eucharistic minister. So she would distribute communion and take communion to the sick. And he said that over time, that this sister, this nun, began to have a, a lack of faith, almost this trial of faith in the Eucharist that she was beginning to doubt if that was really Jesus in the Eucharist. And her reason for doubting, she said, was because it seems so unlike God. I go to the tabernacle, I take out a host, I drive with it in my car, take him to the sick, and he sits there quietly. And one of the things my teacher said was that this sister was not experiencing a lack of faith. She was experiencing the lack of her understanding. That she was actually drawing closer to this great mystery. Realizing that, yes, it seems so unlike God. So unlike what we would be if we were God. Thank God we're not God. <laughs> the second point I'd like to mention about the Eucharist 
is that the Eucharist is the proof that God has overcome evil and that God is in control. Think about this, no matter what happens tonight, and there are some areas of the world where there are horrible things happening. No matter what happens tonight, Jesus Christ is present and he's here with us. In every Catholic church around the world, in the Eucharist. And what is he doing in the Eucharist? He's serving us. He's trying to console us. He's trying to strengthen us. Throughout the world this night, there are people in adoration. In a sense, keeping the world from falling apart. When I was at the seminary, the rector of my, the seminary that I was in had a, one of his childhood friends come to visit him at the seminary. And this friend was a Muslim man. And the rector was a bishop, one of the bishops of New York. And he asked myself and another seminarian to give his friend a tour of the seminary. And so when, when this man came, we, you know, we showed him around, we showed him the refectory, we showed him the 10 acres of property that the seminary was on, we showed him all the beautiful paintings, showed him the classrooms, and then the last place we took him was the chapel. It's a beautiful, beautiful chapel. Beautiful stained glass windows and paintings. And as soon as we entered the chapel with this, with this Muslim man, both the seminarian and I genuflected. We started talking to this man about some of the different paintings on the wall, telling him about some of the different saints. And the, man, the Muslim man interrupted us, and he said, what is it that you just, you just did when you entered this, this chapel? And I said, we genuflected. And he said, why did you do that? And I tried, and I tried as best as I could, it's kind of Eucharist 101, <laughs> to explain to him. I said, okay, you might think this is a little crazy, but that little box up there, we call that a tabernacle. And we actually believe that God is present in there. And that's why we genuflect. And he looked at us and he said, why are your churches empty? if that's what you really believe? Good question, I said. He said, if I believed what you did about the Eucharist, he said, I would never leave church. Another story about our community. Many of you know Father Benedict Rochelle, who passed away almost two years ago. But when our community was starting, he was very good friends with Mother Teresa. And when our community was writing their rule of life, they were trying to discern, okay, how much are we going to pray every day? And one of the things they were thinking about is, should we have a daily 
Eucharistic Holy Hour in our schedule. So should we devote one hour a day at least to Eucharistic adoration? And obviously everyone recognized that as a good idea. But being from New York, they're also very practical. You know, well, we got a lot of things to do. There's a lot of poor here. And Father Benedict was actually saying, I don't think it's going to be possible because the poor ring our doorbell at all hours of the day. And how are we going to have time to spend a whole hour in adoration when the doorbell's ringing, the phone's ringing? And Mother Teresa heard this. She was very good friends with Father Benedict. And she called him up on the phone. And she said, Father Benedict, I hear that you're thinking about not having an hour of Eucharistic adoration. She said to him, that is one of the dumbest ideas you've ever had in your life. <laughs> she said, if you don't spend time in adoration of the Eucharist, you will never be able to serve the poor anything. Needless to say, we have an hour every day of Eucharistic adoration. <laughs> Mother Teresa, one. Father Benedict, zero. <laughs> but if you think about it, now obviously it's impractical for everyone to do an hour of Eucharistic adoration every day. But what it does highlight is the importance and necessity of the Mass. If we really want to be good parents, if we really want to be good teachers, or doctors, or students, or whatever it is that we do, the Mass has to be a priority in our life. What is more important than receiving the bread of life? Everything else can wait at least an hour. The Mass, as I mentioned earlier, is the ultimate glimpse of heaven. You know, I think we have in our life what I sometimes call uh, moments of transcendence. And all that means is there's times in our life, you know, we could, it could be at the birth of your first child, or when you met your spouse, or when you're walking on the, on the beach and the sun is setting, where all of a sudden time seems to stop. And there's this beautiful moment of, of peace where everything seems like it's okay. And unfortunately, those moments are so rare. But we have that every day, every time we come to Mass. You know, that's why it doesn't matter necessarily how good or how bad the singing is or the preaching. Hopefully it'll be good, but it's not necessarily important. Because we don't come to Mass to be entertained. You know, and I think that's something we struggle with in today's culture because you turn on the TV, everything is entertaining. I mean, how about this presidential race? <laughs> Thank God the Mass is not like that, nor is it intended to be. For at least an hour, there's one sane place in the world where we can come, where we can pray, where we can hear God's Word, where we can receive Him in the Eucharist. You know, there are so many amazing stories of people in concentration camps celebrating Mass, trying to hide from the Nazis or the Communists. If you've ever read the stories of Father Walter Chiswick, an amazing, amazing story. He spent 20 years in a concentration camp in Siberia. 
And almost every day, him and a few of the other priests would have to sneak and celebrate Mass by walking around in a circle, holding a little piece of bread in their hands and saying the words of the Mass that they had memorized so that they wouldn't get caught. And if they did get caught celebrating Mass, they'd get thrown into solitary confinement, which happened several times. And as soon as they got out, they did it again. And what is even more crazy is that some of the other prisoners who were regular Catholics, they would yearn for the Eucharist so much that they would fast. It was, this was back in the old days where the, you would not eat until you received the Eucharist. They would work 12 hours a day of hard manual labor in a concentration camp and barely eat, have any food. And they would fast all day so that they could receive the Eucharist at night. Unbelievable. Beautiful, beautiful stories. If you ever get the chance to read the story of Father Walter Chiswick, it's amazing what people went through just to receive the Eucharist. And just like Nicole, they went through that because they realized that the Eucharist was not just bread, that the Eucharist is not just a symbol, but that the Eucharist is God himself hidden, of course, under the appearance of bread. John Paul II used to call this beautiful sacrament, he called it the sacrament of love. Because it's here in the Eucharist where everything comes together. All of the things we've been reflecting upon in this mission, God's love, God's mercy, all the questions we have asked, Does God love me? Does God know me? Does God care about me? In the Eucharist, we hear the yes that our hearts long for. Because it's here where Jesus is with us, where Jesus is for us, and where Jesus is in love with us. You know, in heaven, I'm convinced that looking back on our life, our life will seem like such a short moment. But in a very real way, heaven begins here, in the Eucharist. Because wherever Jesus Christ is present, there is hope, there is healing, There is light, there is life, and there is the love that truly satisfies our restless human hearts. And God, so he doesn't overwhelm us with his glory, in a sense hides under the appearance of bread and wine. And so this night as we come before this tremendous mystery, the greatest mystery in the universe. Let us pray that our eyes, our hearts, and our minds can be opened to experience this sacrament of love. St. Ignatius of Antioch called the Eucharist a medicine for immortality. It is truly the beginning of heaven, right here, right now, in the Eucharist. Amen.
Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.